Hey, it's Rochelle, and you're listening to Clumsy Theosis, a production of Catholic Answers. Welcome to the place to transform the world by transforming yourself. Well, hello. If you are a regular listener or you listened to last week's episode titled Miracles, Signs, and Sacraments in John's Gospel, then I'm pretty sure we all know why we are here today. Now, besides the obvious fact that we all want to transform the world by transforming ourselves, we're here because we want to pair those signs that St. John talks about in his Gospel with the seven sacraments. All right, so let's just do it. All right, first sign. The Wedding Feast at Cana, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Now, if you follow the Clumsy Theosis Instagram, you would have found that I had listed out all of these specific verses in the post for the last week's episode on Instagram. Just want to let you know that that's another incentive to follow me on Instagram if you don't already. All right, so let's get into the Wedding Feast at Cana. Now, I think it's kind of obvious by the title that the sacrament here is marriage. It's a little bit of a giveaway, but I think that we should not just pair this sign with the sacrament and move on. I think we should maybe unpack it a little bit just for fun. And as we do, we're going to see that there's many layers of some goodness here that we might miss out on if we just stay on the surface level. So the basic, I always struggle with this, the basics of this narrative depict Mary and Jesus at a wedding in Cana when the wine runs out. Mary finds out about this and she's concerned because back then a wedding would last for like almost a week. And she knows that this would be extremely embarrassing for the couple if they weren't able to provide wine for the guests. So Mary goes and she talks to Jesus about this and they have a little exchange, right? And we've already discussed this exchange in one of our previous episodes um, that we were, we've already recorded on John's gospel. So if you haven't heard those, then go back and listen to them. But for today's purpose, we're just going to skip over that. And we're just going to look at the sacrament here. Okay. So after Mary and Jesus have this little exchange, Mary instructs the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. And then bada bing, bada boom, Jesus turns the water that's in those six stone jars that was used for purification. He turns that into wine and not just any wine. We're talking some top shelf kind of stuff, right? The choice wine. Now, there's a detail that we might miss, but I think we should pay close attention to it. The steward of the feast, right? He's basically the best man. After he tastes the wine, he approaches the bridegroom and he's like, hey man, this is some really good wine. Don't you know that you're supposed to serve this type of wine first? Why are you saving it till now? And it might seem like it's just some you know, detail to the story to like beef it up a little bit, but it's not. It's very important, right? Because the bridegroom, he has the duty to provide for the feast. And every time I read this story, I'm looking at the groom and I'm like, you had one job and you didn't do it, right? So if the bridegroom doesn't provide for the feast, who does? We know that Jesus does. He fulfills the role of the bridegroom. 
Now, this is also true for us today. Jesus continues to fulfill the role of the bridegroom spiritually. He's the bridegroom of our souls. And if you've ever heard Jesus referred to as the bridegroom, or maybe even if you've heard about the marriage supper of the lamb or the marriage banquet of the lamb, it comes from here. And John really expounds upon this in Revelation, but he's also laying groundwork here in his gospel. And speaking of the marriage supper of the Lamb, we know that this holds two meanings. The first refers to the Eucharist. And the second meaning for the marriage supper of the Lamb is the union between Jesus and us at the end times, which is kind of like a mystical expansion of the first. So remember that the next time you're at Mass or you're at liturgy and you go up to receive the Eucharist, that that union that you are a part of during that moment is going to be exponentially magnified at the end of time when we have that marriage feast with our bridegroom, Christ, and us as the bride, his church. Now, John is doing something really interesting here. He is interlacing the sacrament of marriage and the Eucharist, right? The parallel between the two, it's it's just lovely. Uh, For instance, the embracing of the body of the bridegroom by the bride parallels our embracing of the body of Christ during our reception of the Eucharist. Now, by interlacing them, John is showcasing the elevated role that spouses play in God's plan for our salvation. And I love how John Berksma um, said this. He's one of the theology professors at Franciscan. Okay, so he explained the theology of the sacrament of marriage by likening the spouse to a funnel through which God is channeling his grace. And it's kind of basic, but I love it because it's so true and I've never forgotten it. And because we're all supposed to be Christ in the world. And hello, that also includes our marriages with our spouses and most importantly with our spouses because in that relationship, it's not just a relationship, it's our vocation, and our vocation is intended to get us to heaven. And the purpose of the sacrament of marriage is to prepare us for the ultimate marriage, right? The marriage banquet of the Lamb between us and the Lord. Now, the last thing that I want to mention about this sign is the abundance of wine at the wedding. It symbolizes the abundance of grace that Jesus the bridegroom has for us, his mystical bride, while at the same time, time asserting the ability of a marriage to be a living icon of that love. Oh my gosh. All right, moving to the second sign. Wait, sorry, psych. A little bit more on water into wine. Okay, so the juice of a grape is referred to as the blood of a grape. And we have a little bit more of that typology that we've discussed before. And in this moment, Jesus is turning water into the blood of a grape. Like Moses turned the water of the Nile into blood when God brought down the plagues upon Egypt, right? We've covered this a little bit more extensively in the New Exodus, but I still think that it merits repeating. But also I want to remind you that this is not exhaustive by any means. Remember, these are just some quick tidbits. And if you want to do more study and more meditation on these, please, by all means, do so. Lots of information on the internet and through the Church Fathers, which is free on the internet. Um, Just saying. But we got to move on to sign number two. So in John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, Jesus heals the official's son. Now, 
while Jesus is still in Cana, right, a Roman official hears that he's there. And so he goes to find Jesus to ask for his help because his son is gravely ill. And so he talks to Jesus. And in the end, Jesus says, your son will be, your, your son will live. Now, the official doesn't want some kind of big sign or big for, big performance from Jesus. He just believes that Jesus has the power to heal his son, and that's all he wants. And because of that, and because of that faith, when Jesus spoke those words, your son will be, will be healed, your son will live, sure enough, in that same hour, that boy lived, that boy was healed. Now, this sign points to the anointing of the sick. And in this sign, we see the body of the boy is healed, but there's more happening here. His soul is also being healed. Now, through the anointing of the sick, we expect or we hope for the body to be healed. And I think we may underplay the importance of the fact that every time that someone receives this sacrament, the anointing of the sick, they are being healed. But it's always their soul that is being healed every single time. Now, in some cases during this sacrament, a person, their soul is being prepared to be united with God, right? But that's not always the case, right? If someone is physically healed, then they won't be united with God in that way. But their soul will always be healed no matter if their body is healed or not. And the first Christians were well aware of this. In James chapter 5, we read this. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, right? If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Right now, a misconception about this sacrament is that it is, it is reserved for a person who's on the brink of death. But this is not the case, right? And I've even heard of people who could greatly benefit from the sacrament but don't receive it because they're afraid that it means that they're admitting that they're on the edge of death. And that's not true. That's not true at all. You can receive this sacrament even if you're going in for surgery, even something as routine as like outpatient, outpatient surgery. Oh my goodness, today is just a tongue-tied day. <laughs> Even if they're going in for outpatient surgery, right? This sacrament is always efficacious. So don't shy away from it. Don't be afraid of it because no matter what, your soul is being healed, right? And that's always, always going to be a benefit to you. Now, the third sign, Jesus heals the paralytic. This is in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. So there's a pool of water in Jerusalem called Bethesda. This water is said to have healing powers. And when you hear healing water, you might be tempted to think that this sign is referring to baptism. But let's not be too hasty. Right, so this area, Bethesda, it's heavily crowded by people who are lame, blind, paralyzed, and so on, right? Because they are going there because they want to be um, submerged in that healing water so that they will be healed of their infirmity. Jesus goes... And he meets this paralyzed man who has been there for 38 years. Now, this number is important for two reasons, and we're going to get there. But this man has been there for 38 years. And scripture says that Jesus knew that this man had been there for a long time. And so he asked the man, do you want to be healed? Excuse me? All due respect, Jesus. Obviously, this man has been waiting for 38 years. Pretty sure he wants to be healed. This kind of seems like an odd question, 
but it's not, and we're going to get there. All right, so when I mentioned that 38 years has a significance for two different reasons, okay, well, let's look at the first one. We have another instance of typology here. Now, after the Israelites rebelled against God in Kadesh, how long did they wander in the wilderness for? 38 years, y'all. Yes. And we know this from Deuteronomy and from Numbers. They had to wander in the wilderness for 38 years. And why? Well, the long and short of it is because they kept sinning. They kept driving a wedge between themselves and God, and therefore they were driving a wedge between themselves and the promised land. And why would anybody in their right mind do this? Makes no sense. I mean, let alone a whole people, a whole nation. Why would they continuously do this? And if I've said it once, I've said it before. It's because sin dulls our sensitivity to sin. It becomes easier and easier for us to sin the next time and the next time and the time after that. And we just become so used to it, it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong. And it reminds me of that experiment of a frog, right? You can put a frog in lukewarm water and they'll sit there and you can slowly turn up that water and the frog will get used to that temperature and eventually that temperature will kill him. But he doesn't notice it because he's just been gradually getting used to it as time goes by. The same is true for us. And literally, like, we will die of our sin if we continue to get used to it without being absolved. Now, back to the question that Jesus asked the paralyzed man. Let's think about the answer that he, that he gives to Jesus. He says that, I don't have anyone to put me into the water. Okay, now, he's been there for 38 years. He's saying he wants to be healed, but he's never had anyone to put him into the water. Now, put yourself into this man's shoes. You'd think that you'd try anything and say anything pretty much to get yourself into that pool, especially if you've had 38 years of opportunity to do it, right? And I've always wondered as well, like, how did that man get to that pool in the first place? Someone cared enough to bring him there to help him get there, but that's neither here nor there, right? So... The truth is that that paralyzed man became used to his condition, just like the Israelites in the desert. They might not have liked it, but they got used to it and they dealt with it. And just like that frog, you know, who's in the water that's just getting warmer and warmer, just gets used to that condition. If you haven't guessed it by now, this third sign represents the sacrament of reconciliation and not baptism. I mean, how cool is that? And we we have, you know, further evidence of this when Jesus um, sees that paralyzed man after he heals him, tells him to take up his mat and walk, um, right? Because that man never has to get into the water, does he, to be healed, right? So it's obviously not going to be baptism. It's just Jesus's word and his absolution. And when Jesus sees him again later in the temple, he says, see, you're well, sin no more, right? Jesus is telling him to not get used to his condition, to always strive to live in a life of grace. And that's all we have time for today. But don't go away. I have some special announcements. Next week, we are going to continue on the seven signs in John's gospel. Um, 
And like I say, great minds think alike. And I think everyone else says that. I don't know why I said like I say. But anyways, because great minds think alike, if you are excited about any of this information, you have to know someone else who was as well. So go ahead and pull out your phone and text that person and send them a link or the info to this episode. And while you're doing that, I'm going to give you another announcement here. So all my listeners in San Diego, I'm going to be speaking next Saturday, April 13th at 10 a.m. at St. Vincent Catholic Church, and this is on Hawk Street, so don't go to the wrong St. Vincent. Um, It's free admission. I'd love it if you could stop by. It'd be nice if you wanted to say hi afterwards. That's great. You can get more detail on the Clumsy Theosis Facebook page as well as the Instagram page. And go ahead and subscribe to this podcast where all good podcasts are found. And last but not least, I do want to give a big shout out to Scott Hahn and John Bergsma, professors at Franciscan University of Steubenville, thanking them for my formation and Franciscan University in general, because it is from them that I have learned all of this wonderful, exciting goodness about scripture and particularly John's gospel. All right, everybody, until next week, peace out. Thank you for tuning in this week to Clumsy Theosis. Each week, we explore a topic within the Catholic faith to aid listeners like yourself, as well as yours truly, in the advancement and deepening of the spiritual life and the personal ownership of our relationship with the big guy upstairs and his church. As cliche as it sounds, the world needs you. Become who you were created to be with Clumsy Theosis, the place to transform the world by transforming yourself.